Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11. Before we begin our scripture reading, just a few brief comments. I have said before that there are some difficult chapters in Daniel, and this is one of them. It is difficult, first of all, because chapters 10, 11, and 12 really constitute a continuous unit. Chapter 10 is the preface in which Daniel receives a heavenly visitor, vision of a glorious man. Chapter 11 is a lengthy and detailed prophecy. Chapter 12 is the postscript which concludes the entire book. The three chapters hang together. Secondly, this chapter is difficult because unless you know something about ancient history, this portion can be rather frustrating and tedious. It's a lengthy prophecy of wars, battles, kings, and empires. We don't have time to deal with every detail in this chapter, but I hope to give at least an idea of how perfectly these prophecies were fulfilled. And I'll leave the rest for your own historical investigation if you wish. If some of the things I say this morning are similar to previous messages, it is because some of the same historical material is covered here in chapter 11. So let's read together this 11th chapter, beginning with verse 2. Verse 2. And I, I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity or according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years in the king of the north. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment, 
Though in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him, even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him, shall, thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacy shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved, and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. 
and some of those of understanding shall fall, to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So far the reading of God's holy word. Perhaps you saw it on the news. A 28-year-old is the first Canadian ever to win the title of world's strongest man. He can pull trucks and deadlift the equivalent of a fully grown male moose. It seems as though throughout history, people have always been impressed by human strength. And there have always been those who strive for preeminence, whether in sports, bodybuilding, beauty, politics, or military might. While there is nothing wrong with striving for excellence, the consistent message of Scripture is that human strength and beauty are temporary and fading. Psalm 147 says, The Lord does not delight in the strength of the horse or in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. All the great and famous men and women of previous centuries are where, children? In the grave. In the grave, every last one of them. God alone is from everlasting to everlasting, and His glory, majesty, and power are never diminished. In the book of Daniel, we have seen mighty kings and nations rise and fall, but above them stands the Lord of history. 
The final vision recorded in the book of Daniel was given in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, chapter 10, verse 1. In the first year of his reign, Cyrus had issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple. Daniel had remained behind. When the decree of Cyrus was issued, Daniel was in his 80s. Instead of making the difficult trip back to Jerusalem, he remained in a foreign land. But in the third year of Cyrus, he was extremely unhappy. We saw that last week. For three weeks, he mourned and prayed, chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. The restoration was not moving ahead the way that he had expected. Only a small fraction of the Jews took the opportunity to return to Jerusalem. And those who did return were facing numerous discouragements. The lack of progress filled Daniel with grief, concern. One day, when he was by the river Tigris, he suddenly saw a vision. A glorious, radiant, heavenly messenger appeared to him, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. The appearance of this heavenly messenger was so breathtaking that it caused Daniel to fall with his face to the ground. It was as though he was in a deep sleep. He felt as though he was about to disintegrate. But the messenger did not leave Daniel in a state of terror. He touched him and strengthened him and said, do not fear, Daniel. The angelic being was sent from the throne room of God in response to Daniel's prayers. The angel revealed to him that the events of human history encompassed more than could be seen with a human eye. The events of this world are directly intertwined with an unseen spiritual battle. Daniel was given a glimpse into the conflict that is being fought in the spiritual realm. He also learned that the future of God's people was in God's hands. Everything is ordered, structured, and planned according to His perfect will. In the 11th chapter of Daniel, the angel continued to reveal who is the Lord of history. Chapter 11 records events which were written in advance, history which was recorded before it took place. Because this portion contains such remarkably accurate details, some liberal scholars maintain that this book was written in the time of the Maccabees, in the second century before Christ, after these events. There are liberal scholars who have a difficult time accepting the fact that such a detailed preview of history could have been received by Daniel many hundreds of years before the events. But this is precisely what the book itself claims. God is the one who is able to reveal secrets and mysteries. He knows and determines the end from the beginning. Therefore, we have no difficulty accepting these chapters as a prophetic description of future events. The same God who can deliver people from a fiery furnace or from the mouths of lions is able to communicate to his servants an accurate picture of the future. Let's have a closer look then at the glorious man's message in which the question is answered, who is Lord of history? 
These verses describe, first, the struggles of Persia and Greece. Second, the struggles of North and South. Third, the struggles associated with Antiochus Epiphanes. And fourth, the struggles associated with Antichrist, the man of sin. Verses 2 through 4 describe the struggles of Persia and Greece. Please follow along at verse 2 in your Bibles. Verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. The fourth king after Cyrus was a man named Xerxes, who reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. He's better known to us from the book of Esther as Ahasuerus. When you read the first chapter of Esther, you learn that this king was indeed extremely prosperous. He used his riches to raise an immense army against Greece. He waged several military campaigns against them. However, Persia did not remain the dominant power. The Persian Empire was eventually overtaken by that of Greece under the leadership of Alexander the Great. This is what verse 3 is referring to when it says, have a look there, verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion, great power, and do according to his will. You'll recall Daniel had already seen the power of this king in an earlier vision, chapter 8. There he was described as a male goat with a notable horn who came from the west. And the goat raced at such a speed that its feet did not touch the ground. The goat charged at the ram with furious power so that the ram was totally crushed. The ram symbolized the empire of the Medes and Persians. Under the leadership of Alexander the Great, the Persian Empire was defeated. But as you know... Alexander's success was short-lived. At the very height of his power, at the age of just 33, he died. Following his death, the empire was finally divided into four regions. And this is what is described in verse 4. Have a look. Verse 4. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, it will not go to his descendants, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these, uprooted and given to others. As great as Alexander was, he was not able to secure the kingdom for his own sons. His empire was divided into four regions, each one governed by one of his generals. The predictions of verse 4 were accurately fulfilled. Alexander died in the prime of his life, and the spoils were divided among his generals. All his descendants, including his wives, children, and even relatives, were murdered. God allowed him to trample and crush the ram, Persia, But after a time, the Lord spoke, and the horn was broken. By the time he was 26 years old, Alexander had virtually conquered the world, but when God said enough, the notable horn was broken. 
So that's point number one, the struggles of Persia and Greece. We go on then to the struggles of north and south. The struggles of north and south. The events of verses 5 through 20 are somewhat confusing because most of us are not that familiar with this period of history. Therefore, when we read this, it tends to go in one ear and out the other. We have no idea what it means. But when you begin to study ancient history, you will find that the words of this messenger to Daniel were precisely fulfilled. Verse 5 speaks of the king of the south who would become strong as well as one of his princes, his commanders. After the division of Alexander's kingdom, the south, that is Egypt, was ruled by Ptolemy, one of Alexander's generals. Ptolemy had as a prince, a commander, a man named Seleucus, or some pronounce it Seleucus. Seleucus became a military genius and eventually set up his own empire in the north. After a time, the Seleucid Empire exceeded the southern kingdom of the Ptolemies. It became both larger and more powerful. As verse 5b says, he gained power over him and had dominion. After a number of years, these two kingdoms formed an alliance through marriage. Verse 6 mentions, if you go down there to verse 6, it mentions the daughter of the king of the south, who goes to the king of the north to make an agreement, an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south was a woman named Bernice. For political purposes, she was married to the king of the north. The marriage, however, did not have the desired effect of uniting the two kingdoms. I can't go into all the historical details, but we know that Bernice was eventually poisoned and the alliance failed. To avenge her death, the brother of Bernice, who took over the southern kingdom, attacked the north and succeeded in killing those who had murdered his sister. He looted their temples and carried their gods back with him to Egypt. That is what verse 8 is referring to. Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, pillaged the northern kingdom the Jewish historian Josephus records that Ptolemy III returned to Egypt with 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 2,500 objects that had been the cities and temples of the northern Seleucid kingdom. Now, I'm not trying to bore you or to put you to sleep with these historical details. But I want to point out to you that all these things were revealed to Daniel centuries before they took place. Rather than being bored by a history lesson, we should be amazed at the perfect accuracy of the Word of God. Verses 9 through 20 continue to describe the conflicts between north and south. Each detail has a precise fulfillment in history. There were attacks and counterattacks. The south would prevail, then the north. The south would gain the victory, then the north. The matter that was of particular interest to Daniel, however, was what? How does all this affect the people of God? Look at verse 16. Verse 16. But he, 
that is the king of the north, who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand, or he will establish himself in the glorious land with destruction in his power. See that? The glorious land, or some translations say the beautiful land, is the land of promise. The king of the north would stand in Palestine with destruction in his hand. He will have the power to destroy it. These words must have been rather devastating for Daniel. The Jews had just returned from 70 years of exile. But Daniel was given to see that their difficulties were far from over, far from over. The glorious land would be caught in the middle of north and south. The king of the north would prevail. Palestine would fall into his hands. His power would be such that he would do whatever he wanted. Then, according to verse 20, another would arise in his place who would impose taxes on the glorious kingdom. Daniel could see that the future for Israel would be filled with trials and hardships. But those trials and hardships were no reason for despair, for God was directing every unfolding event. The kings of both north and south were in the hand of God. The suffering that Israel would endure could only happen by God's permission and by His decree. This is especially necessary to keep in mind as you consider the third section of this chapter, namely, the struggle associated with Antiochus Epiphanes. The struggle associated with Antiochus Epiphanes. This remarkably wicked, godless king was already mentioned in the eighth chapter of Daniel, appearing as a little horn which grew exceedingly great. His power extended into the glorious land, the land of God's covenant people. We saw how the little horn took center stage in the vision of chapter 8 because its power was directed with demonic hatred against the people of God. We saw that the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people in history. This wicked ruler appears in verses 21 to 35 of this chapter, and many details of his career are predicted. Antiochus Epiphanes was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. He is the vile, you see that word there, vile, contemptible person spoken of in verse 21. Verse 21 accurately describes how his path to the throne was a way of careful intrigue and deceit. He took the throne that should have belonged to his nephew, Demetrius. Antiochus was a cunning, cruel, greedy, immoral, and violent man. Verse 21 says that they would not give him the honor of royalty. Royal dignity did not belong to him because he seized the kingdom for himself. Through smooth talking, flatteries, and secret maneuvers, he gained his position. His early career was marked by military success. We read in verse 22, 
With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Antiochus made successful military raids against the Ptolemies of Egypt. While he did so, he broke with one of his closest allies, here referred to as the prince of the covenant. The prince, although some believe that the prince of the covenant is referring to the execution of the high priest, Onias, in Jerusalem. He then went on to make an alliance with Egypt, thereby further increasing his power and influence. He became rather wealthy, and this enabled him to dispense all kinds of riches to whomever he pleased. Verse 25 goes on to say that he stirred up his power and courage against the king of the south with a great army. The king of the south was stirred to battle with a mighty army, but he could not stand against Antiochus. Many fell slain before his troops, and Antiochus was the victor. Eventually, the two kings met together for discussions. But they were rather pointless because, as verse 27 indicates, both of these kings were bent on evil. They spoke lies at the same table. Each tried to outsmart and outmaneuver the other. Antiochus then departed from Egypt to return to his land, but while he had been fighting in Egypt, a rumor that he had been killed in battle reached Jerusalem. Immediately, an attempt was made on the part of the Jews to remove the high priest whom Antiochus had appointed to reinstate the true high priest. When Antiochus found out, he marched from Egypt and savagely attacked the city of Jerusalem. Go to verse 28. Verse 28 says, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. Antiochus ruthlessly attacked Jerusalem and executed thousands of its inhabitants. He looted the temple and defiled it by sacrificing a pig on the altar of burnt offering. He also carried some of the sacred furniture with him back to Antioch in Syria. Then, several years later, in the year 168 BC, Antiochus prepared for another invasion of Egypt. This expedition is described in verses 29 and following. As he made his way to Egypt, he was intercepted by delegates from Rome who arrived at the Egyptian coast by ships, verse 30. The delegates from Rome demanded that Antiochus abandon his plans and return home. It is reported that the Roman consul drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and ordered, a, ordered him to make up his mind before stepping out of the circle. If he stepped out of the circle without first agreeing to return home, the Roman officer said he would declare war. Antiochus knew that it would be foolish to embroil himself in war with Rome, and therefore, deeply humiliated and angered, he backed down and went home. But, as verse 30 says, the whole incident caused him to return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. You see that in verse 30? He returned to Jerusalem to vent his anger on the people of God. Look with me, please, to verse 31. 
And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Having been humiliated by Rome, Antiochus poured out his fury upon the Jews. He led 20,000 men into Jerusalem, abolished temple worship, and massacred a multitude who were assembled for worship on the Sabbath. The sanctuary is defiled, the sacred books of the law burned, and a statue of Zeus erected in the temple. Pagan sacrifices were made on the altar of burnt offering. This is the abomination of desolation mentioned in verse 31. Antiochus made a systematic attempt to abolish every trace of Jewish religion and replace it with Greek culture and thought. Through flattery, through deceit, he persuaded some Jews to apostatize and become allies with him. Because of this horrible desecration of all that was sacred, Antiochus became to the Jewish people a symbol of unbridled wickedness. While there were some who apostatized, there were others who remained steadfast. Neither torture nor the threat of death deterred them from being faithful. Verse 32b says, The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Another translation says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. A widespread resistance was organized, which led to the rebellion of the Maccabees. Judas Maccabeus organized military resistance, and through him the temple was reopened and reconsecrated for the worship of God. Now again, congregation, I don't want you to look at these events as a mere history lesson. This is not a record of history at all. It's not history. It's prophecy. It's prophecy. This chapter foretells the future in such a remarkable way that it should leave each and every one of us in awe of the wonders that are found in God's Word. Centuries before they occurred, these events were predicted and recorded. So, what can we learn from this prophecy? What does it teach us today? Allow me to mention just a few lessons for your consideration, and hopefully you'll follow up with discussion in the fellowship hall later. First of all, this chapter should reconfirm and strengthen our confidence in the Scriptures. This chapter should reconfirm and strengthen our confidence in the Scriptures. The fact that this is a record of events written before they took place proves that, that it has a supernatural origin. The Bible is not merely a human document. It is the product of God's unique revelation. Detailed prophecy such as we find in this chapter validates the Bible as divine revelation. All Scripture is God-breathed. Those who ignore or reject the Bible are the greatest fools on earth. Scripture is infallible and inerrant. 
for it is inspired by the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John 17, your word is truth. Second, not only does this chapter reconfirm and strengthen our confidence in Scripture, but it also teaches us that the events of this world are not out of control. The events of this world are not out of control. This heavenly messenger could not have given Daniel a detailed survey of the future if the future was uncertain. The only reason Daniel could receive this message was because every minute detail was foreordained by God. This chapter contains a lengthy list of wars, alliances, marriages, and political intrigue. God's not mentioned in any of it. And yet it is the Lord who directs all of it. He guides the affairs of this world in such a way that His will is accomplished. Chapter 11 surveys hundreds of years of battles, armies crossing through Palestine, kings rising and falling, empires coming and going. It may seem all rather chaotic and out of control. But every event is directed by the unseen hand. Brothers and sisters, there's much comfort in this. As we reflect upon the events of our world today, we could easily be driven to fear. The news constantly reminds us of the foolishness of many world leaders and big-shot entertainers, many of whom have bowed before the green god or embraced the folly of wokeism, which some have called our most popular secular religion. We constantly hear about their pet agendas, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, unrestricted, taxpayer-funded abortion on demand, radical sex education in schools, unconditional acceptance of transgenderism and all manner of sexual perversion. When we hear these things, we could become very discouraged. But if we remember that God is bringing to pass His eternal purposes, we can go on with peaceful confidence. The world powers today are no less in the hands of God than they were in the centuries following Daniel. Whether it is China, North Korea, the U.S. or Canada, all the nations and their leaders are bringing to pass the eternal purposes of God. While His ways are often a mystery to us, we need to trust that all things are moving toward the final triumph of Jesus Christ. All the nations are within His sovereign authority, and the events of this world are not out of control. Thirdly, this chapter also reinforces in our minds the instability of the kingdoms of man. The instability of the kingdoms of man. Whether it is Persia, Greece, Egypt, or Rome, they are all temporary. 
whether it is Xerxes, Alexander, or Antiochus Epiphanes, they all end up where? In the grave. In the grave. Human kings and kingdoms without God are unstable and bound to crumble. Brothers and sisters, you can't put your trust in princes, mighty armies, or political alliances. You can't put your trust in the weapons or strategies of men. And then fourthly, this chapter also teaches us that God works out His purposes in the lives of His people even in difficult times. Even in difficult times times. The reign of Antiochus was a reign of terror. But as verse 35 says, it refined, purged, and made them white, spotless, until the time of the end. It was a purifying experience. The suffering and persecution served to strengthen the true children of God. The sword, flame, captivity, and plundering made them more resolved to serve their Lord. The apostle said in Romans 8 that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, none of these things can separate believers from the love of God. And so this chapter should, number one, reconfirm and strengthen our confidence in the Scriptures. Number two, it should teach us that the events of this world are not out of control. Number three, it should teach us the instability of the kingdoms of man. And number four, it should teach us that God works out His purposes in the lives of His people even in difficult times. We turn then to the final portion of this chapter in which we see the struggles associated with Antichrist. The struggles associated with Antichrist. In verses 36 to 45, there appears to be a shift from Antiochus Epiphanes to another evil ruler. At first, when you read verse 36, it seems to merely continue However, these concluding verses do not provide an accurate description of Antiochus. For this reason, as well as other considerations, many commentators understand these verses as describing the Antichrist, the man of sin. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 36. Verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will, or as he pleases, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Verses 36 and following describe a man who does whatever he pleases. He's very similar to Antiochus, but surpasses him in wickedness. It is not entirely surprising that the angelic messenger made a smooth transition from the one to the next. 
Antiochus was a prefigurement for someone like him who would arise in the future. The prophecy, therefore, makes a natural, almost imperceptible shift from one to the next, from Antiochus to Antichrist. Verse 36 reminds us of what the apostle wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2. Speaking of the great apostasy in the latter days and the revealing of the man of sin, the Apostle Paul said that this son of perdition would oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. The description of the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2 harmonizes well with verses 36 and following. It describes an arrogant, autonomous, blasphemous individual. He has no regard for any God whatsoever. He has no desire for human relationships or affection. He is completely devoid of all pity. The only God he worships, according to verse 38, is the God of fortresses. That is the God of power, force, and might. By his power, he seeks to advance his rule. Now, brothers and sisters, in our interpretation of this final portion, we need to remember that future events are described here by means of the language of the day, okay? We cannot take these verses in a literalistic fashion, for the language of Daniel's day is used to describe events of the final day. Verse 40 mentions chariots, horsemen, and ships as the weapons for conflict in the last days because those were the weapons that Daniel's contemporaries could relate to. It does not mean that the territorial expansion of the Antichrist will be accomplished literally by those means. What it does signify is that the Antichrist will fight to obtain the preeminence. He will defeat all who oppose him. Only those who are enemies of the people of God, represented by Edom, Moab, and Ammon, only they will escape his wrath. Verses 40 to 45 portray great battles in which the man of sin prevails. The entire world will face his fury. He will command universal submission, all rebellion will be silenced, and all the nations will follow at his heels. Evil will increase in the last days until the man of, of sin sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, using the words of the Apostle Paul. Admittedly, congregation, many of the details are difficult to understand in this last section. We hope to see in our next message from chapter 12 that Daniel himself did not understand it all. If Daniel confessed his inability, we should not be ashamed to confess our limitations in grasping all the precise details. But what we do see rather clearly here is a universal power struggle in which evil seems to triumph and the man of sin seems to prevail. However, however, in the very last line of verse 45, it all comes to a sudden halt. 
The glorious man said to Daniel, look at the last line of this chapter. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. The Antichrist, the son of perdition, will come to his end. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. When Jesus returns, the man of sin will be quickly consumed. The arrogant, autonomous, blasphemous individual will come to an end and no one will help him. Congregation, as we saw earlier in this book, we can expect that terrible days are in store for the church. But a man of sin is revealed there will be such terrible iniquity and persecution such as this world has never seen. Far worse than anything experienced under Antiochus. But the Lord will always preserve his remnant. Even in the darkest days, there will be those who hold fast to the truth. Now, brothers and sisters, we can be assured that even when wickedness seems to triumph, it will not prevail. The day will come when Christ will breathe upon the man of sin so that he will be consumed. Once again, Daniel received a survey of history from his own day to the final day. He saw that the people of God would suffer incredibly, but he also saw the end of it all. Evil will be brought to an end. Then let us not fear the powers of darkness, but let us look to Jesus Christ through whom the victory is and will be secured. Antichrist will be destroyed and Christ magnified. He will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who suffered and was crucified for sinners will be highly exalted. The one who cried out in anguish at Calvary will be revealed as cosmic king. And so as we conclude, I want to ask you, have you trusted him as your king? Have you trusted him as your king, the Lord of history? The day is coming when the Son of God will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, as we sang a moment ago from Psalm 2. All who have rejected him will be rejected. Revelation 6 says that at the coming of Jesus, the kings of the earth, great men, rich men, commanders, mighty men, every slave and every free man will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? History is moving forward toward that final day and final kingdom, what will that day be for you? What will that day be for you?
those who are found in Christ, will be ushered into the eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace. No longer will nation rise against nation. No longer will kingdoms slaughter kingdoms. Christ will reign. And all his enemies will be made his footstool. Those who are found in Christ will reign with him. That is the confidence of the Christian. The raging of the nations will cease. Ungodliness will cease. And eternal blessedness will be yours in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Eternal blessedness in the presence of the King. Let us pray. Lord, we acknowledge before you that with our small minds, this is a difficult chapter for us to work through. But we praise you, Lord, for the accuracy of Scripture. All that was prophesied has been and will be perfectly fulfilled. Pray, Lord, that each one of us would be humbled here this morning, recognizing, Lord, that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of Christ alone will endure forever. May we all acknowledge that. May we fall in repentance and humility before the King. And may we, Lord, then receive that full confidence that whatever may happen in our lives or whatever may happen in the future, whatever may happen to the church of Jesus Christ, you are sovereign. You are working out your plan that evil cannot triumph in the end. So we praise you for the victory of Christ. We acknowledge him as King of kings and Lord of lords. We anticipate the day, Lord, when the Son of God will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So may we, each one of us, kiss the Son that we may be prepared for that great and final judgment. Work in the hearts of your people here. Humble us, Lord, so that one day, by your grace, we may be exalted. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.